The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Mountain Lake at the end of it, so off we went. And things began pretty well. We were all enjoying the journey, but eventually we came to a, a, a place on the path where our path met up with two other paths in sort of a three-way intersection, and we weren't quite sure which path we were supposed to go on. And the sign, and there was a sign, but no joke, it had fallen to the ground, and we couldn't quite tell which way we were supposed to go. Seems like we're supposed to go to the left, but it could be the right. I think it's the left. It's the left. So we went left, and then proceeded to follow the path as we crossed over some fallen logs and under some other fallen trees and through the next meadow and on and on, and there's not another soul in sight. And eventually, I, I don't know how to estimate, I knew how long the trail was supposed to be, but I'm not very good at estimating distances in that sort of terrain, and so I was beginning to wonder, how will we ever know if we're on the right path? And we're, each step, we're going a little more uncertain, and folks in the party are getting a little antsy, and we're wondering, did we make the right decision back there or not? And then we met two hikers coming from the other direction. Hey, is this, is this the path to the lake? Oh, yeah, this, it's straight up this way, up a, kind of a steep hill, but it's maybe 15 more minutes and you're going to be right there. Oh, perfect. And we're reinvigorated, you know, a little bounce in our step, and off we go. Now, before we met those folks, were we on the right path? Yes. Yeah, we were. 15 more minutes would approve that. But how vigorous had our walking of that path become? Not very. Every step we're wondering, am I compounding my air? Every step I take, every step I take, am I getting further and further away from my actual destination of that lake? And how enthusiastic would we have been in our inviting of others to join us on that journey to the lake that we think might perhaps be up this way? Not very, of course. But all that gets cleared up when somebody who knows the truth opens our eyes to it. They tell us, they explain, and we are encouraged and strengthened in our journey and reinvigorated in our inviting of others to join us in the journey. That's what happened when we saw the truth. We were on the right path, but knowing that you're on the right path is immensely helpful in the walking of that path. That's what we're going to consider today from the second half of Acts chapter 15. Last week, we were in the first half of Acts 15, and the mass of that chapter focuses on the decision reached by the Jerusalem council. The apostles and the elders had gathered in the city of Jerusalem to discuss an issue that was raised by a controversy in the city of Antioch. Some messengers had come to that city, a Gentile church, and told them, you cannot be saved unless you get circumcised, essentially unless you become Jews and follow all the law. They said it to the Gentiles, and so they were really flustered. We'd been told that faith in the grace of the cross was enough, but you're saying something different. Which is it? What is the correct path to God? This comes from Jerusalem, so we need to go to Jerusalem to resolve it. So they did. Went back there. Last week's passage was all about that meeting and the discussion that ensued. Everybody got a chance to speak their mind, but the issue was settled when the, the leaders, when Peter and then Barnabas and Paul and then finally James spoke. 
Peter reminded everyone there about the story of Cornelius. You can read about it in Acts chapter 10. He reminded them how he had preached to Cornelius, a Gentile, not circumcised, specifically not following all the law. He'd preached to him about Christ come down to earth, hung on the tree of cursing, to pay the curse for sin, and how if one believes in that cross, one is saved. He preached that, and he believed, he and his whole household believed without doing anything, no behavior, no action, no circumcision. They just believed, and God gave them the Spirit and saved them. The gospel of grace saved Cornelius apart from the law. And as he said that, it kind of struck a chord. The crowd fell silent and pondered that. And then Paul and Barnabas stood up and said, that, yeah, that's what we're preaching throughout all of Asia Minor. And God again and again and again by miraculous moving is testifying to it. We preach that and he supports it by making some blind and by making some to walk. Miracle upon miracle. And then James says, and that's exactly what the scripture said. God, we, we know God said he would call in a people for himself from Gentiles. And it's happening in the message, the word of grace. That is the path to God. Not on top of something else, that's separate from something else. That alone, grace and the cross alone, faith is the way to God. So don't trouble them anymore. That's the verdict. They all come to consensus on that point. That was last week, and then this week is how they pass that out to all the various Gentile churches that were unsettled by this controversy. This week is the dissemination of the verdict, and we're going to read that and look at it and learn from it. Let me read the passage, beginning at Acts chapter 15, verse 22, through 16, verse 5. 15, 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent, on to, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. 
But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in number daily. The decisions reached, and obviously the whole structure of this is how they pass out that decision through the various churches in Syria and then into Asia Minor, Turkey. Verse 22, the church in Jerusalem agrees that they should send a letter with messengers, leaders from the church, and so they send them off. And when they arrive in Antioch, they deliver the letter and read it to the whole assembled church. And right as the letter begins, the church has reason to be encouraged. If you're reading the NAS or the ESV, you'll notice there's a double mentioning of brothers in the introduction to this letter. The brothers, the apostles and elders, to the brothers of the Gentiles. And as you hear that, what it says is, those guys think we're brothers. The issue was about what's the gospel. They think we're brothers, that the wall's been torn down and that we are in the same camp. That's good news right from the start. Greetings, they say. We've heard about your unfortunate messengers. The trouble that that's caused you. They, they distance themselves from the messengers and from the message. We didn't send them, though they claimed that. They didn't come from us. But we've decided to send some actual messengers and tell you something different. And we've sent our messengers along with Barnabas and Paul, and look how they describe them, beloved the issue was, what are these guys preaching? Are they heretics preaching a false gospel? No, we describe them as beloved, those who have risked their lives for Christ. We honor them and we respect them. More good news. And then here's the verdict. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to not lay any other burden on you. They go into then the four requirements that they do put forward. We mentioned those last week very briefly. These are four requirements related to the ceremonial cleanliness cleanness before the ceremony of the law. And they asked them to refrain from those things, not for salvation's sake, but because, as we saw last week, because of the conscience of the Jews. The main point is, God, the Holy Spirit, and us, all of us together, agree no greater burden. That's good news. And they hear that, and they are filled with joy. Filled with joy because of its encouragement. 
that strikes you. You know that the last time you heard about this controversy, they were walking off to Jerusalem to, to decide whether or not you were saved, basically. If what you'd believed was the true gospel, and now you hear, in fact, we are embraced. We are on the right path. We are one with the apostles and with the elders and with the Jerusalem church. We are one with the family of God. This is great news. And they are filled with rejoicing, encouraged by this letter, affirming you are on the right path. The two delegates, they stay a little while longer to encourage them and strengthen them even more. And then after they leave, Paul stays teaching and preaching evangelistically, evangelizing the gospel out in the city with many others. Interesting little note there. A lot of folks who had been troubled and unsettled in their minds are now joining Paul in evangelism in the city. It's been a change in how they are perceiving themselves and what they are willing to engage in. That goes on for a little while until Paul decides to revisit the churches that they had planted during the first missionary journey. The problem is that he wants to take John Mark. You see there that the issue of should we or shouldn't we take him arises. We still don't know from reading this what the actual problem was. It's just clear that it was serious that John Mark left them. Paul doesn't think it wise to take him, and so they go their separate ways. Paul begins to go then back through what would be Turkey today, carrying the letter that was written to Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches as he goes. And he finally comes to Lystra and meets a young man named Timothy. Timothy has a great reputation in the two churches there that are pretty close geographically. And he wants to take him on as an apprentice, but there's a problem there too. He's not circumcised. He's a Jew because his mother is, but everybody knows that he's not circumcised because his father was a Gentile. And that's a problem, not again for salvation, but it's a problem in the very same vein as those four restrictions were. It's a problem, the text says, because of the Jews. Timothy is an apostate Jew, being Jewish and not circumcised, which means that any Jew is not going to give him the time of day. He can't walk into a synagogue and have anybody sit next to him or talk to him or listen to anything he says, which is a huge problem for a missionary. So in the spirit of become a Jew to the Jews so as to win the Jews, in that spirit, not to be saved, but in that spirit, says, let's solve this problem by circumcising you. And Timothy says, amen. They do it, move on, disseminating the letter as they go. In verse 5, the churches are strengthened in the faith. And God adds to their number regularly. They hear the letter, you're on the right path, they are strengthened in their faith, and the church grows numerically. That's the passage for today, the follow-up to the Jerusalem Council. And throughout this whole passage, we find this main theme. God grows his church by deepening our trust in the gospel. God grows his church in depth, personally, individually, and as a body. He will grow us in depth and in breadth, in size. God grows his church when we, the church, deepen in our trust of the gospel, in our embracing of it, in our grabbing hold of it and hoping in it. He means for Christians to have confirmed in our minds and hearts that the gospel of salvation by grace, through faith, 
is true, and it is the only message about how a person can be joined to the living God. The one and the only way. You are on it, others must be. He wants that to be ringing in your ears, confirmed again and again in your mind, and he will use that to grow us internally and in breadth as well. It's the main point. I'm going to make three observations about that from this text. The first one, the first observation, puts us in the place of those who are receiving the letter, whether it be in Antioch or Syria, Cilicia, or in the other cities, who are receiving the letter. And so with them, we, we open up the letter and we read it and we hear this message. Here's the first point. We should be encouraged and strengthened. You're on the right path. If you're a Christian, be encouraged and strengthened. You are on the right path. The gospel of grace, which you have heard, is true. That was debated and resolved there, established by the story of Cornelius, established by the scriptures. What Peter preached about Christ, God come to earth, God come down to be crucified, God raised and reigning as judge, God offering salvation through those who trust Christ and his cross, that is true. It's true. Whether you've heard it or not, it's true. Whether you believe it or not, it's true. That's not going to change. But what is going to change, what does change, is the nature of one's life, depending on if... Or to what degree you grasp that truth, that gospel. That's the issue in this passage. Awareness of the truth of the gospel is lacking. That's what verse 24 is saying, that they are unsettled and troubled in their hearts. Why? Because of the message it says you guys aren't saved. They're unsettled and troubled. Are they actually saved? Yes. But they're unsettled and troubled because they wonder about that. And the message that comes to them says, you're on the right path. And it's passed out through each of these geographic regions. It's in the letter that they receive in Antioch. It's the letter they receive in in Syria and Cilicia. Notice it was addressed to them as well, and Paul takes it there. And it's the letter they disseminate in the cities of Iconium and Lystra. And each time, look at the connection, each time what it says, that when they read the letter, when they heard it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They were strengthened. They were strengthened in the faith. Each one of those sections has that statement. They hear the letter and they're strengthened. That is, they they grow in their steadfastness in Christ. They grow in their hope in Christ. They grow in their ability to face opposition, persecution. They mature. They're filled with hope. What every Christian should want. And where does it come from? It comes from realizing the gospel is true. This message you have embraced is true. We should see that connection and realize if you want hope, if you want strong faith, you don't first think about be more hopeful, be stronger. You first think about what is the gospel? You bathe your mind in that. You deal with the gospel, and then that produces hope and strength and faith and joy. That's the connection three times in this passage. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the path. If you're a Christian, you are on the path. You've been saved, which means you've been brought into union with God through Christ. You are forgiven. You're one with the people of God. He is for you by grace before you did anything. What can separate you from his love? Who can stand against you? Nothing and nobody. Maybe right now, or maybe you have been in the past, or you will be tomorrow, maybe you are in a verse 24 sort of place unsettled and troubled in mind. If that's you, and I identify with that, I have been there repeatedly. Significantly, I was there shortly after I became a Christian in college, interacting with a bunch of non-Christian folks, and some of the questions that these guys were raising, these were Muslims in particular, that they were raising unsettled me. And what proved helpful at that time and has from time to time since then, what proved helpful was some apologetic material. That is, some information about facts. Some understanding of some arguments that support the validity of the Bible and the validity of the gospel. I read some of those things. I thought about them and I realized, you know, actually this is true. That's critical because at the bottom level, what Christianity is talking about is not some impression that it's true, not some internal persuasion. We're talking about facts. Jesus lived. Jesus was crucified. Jesus rose again. The tomb was empty. Those are facts. Now, there are other things that that require faith, certainly. But the bottom level, Christianity is about fact. This, this book is about a world that existed. Really, you can find it in archaeology. You can find all these peoples. All these cities exist. These people were real. We're talking about facts, which is very different than many other religions. Some apologetic material might help you to understand the gospel is true. Regardless of how I feel about it, it's true. If you want some material, talk to me. I'll give you some leads. Look at the book table. We've got a couple of things back there that might be helpful to you. For 5 or $6, you can pick up a book, The Case for Faith. It's an engaging book, pretty easy read. You could start with that. So we're looking for, for hope, for strength in faith that comes from a, a conviction that the gospel is true. Maybe apologetic material might be helpful for you on that. But I find that what's most helpful in my life in confirming in my mind that the gospel is true is to engage with the gospel, to read it over and over, to pray it into my life, to obey it, to follow it. And what I find is it becomes a kind of a circle that I taste and see the Lord in it, to find out that he's good, want more, taste more of him and see more of his goodness, want more. It becomes a circle an encouraging, building up a convicting circle in my heart. I think, I think the scripture would support this, and I, I think my experience supports this as well. The greatest piece of confirming evidence you have is to read the Bible. To 
pray it into your life and to obey it. Take, for example, take a verse like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Just take that one verse and read it and think about it. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. If you're a Christian, you probably know that verse. But you take that and you read it and you think into it. God made him, who? Christ. God made Jesus come down to earth perfect without sin because God is holy. He's fully divine. He knew no sin. But God made him to be sin. Why? Because I'm a sinner. And I need to stand before God righteous somehow or another and I cannot work my sin off. But God made him to be sin so that I could be the righteousness of God so that we could trade you could take my sin, give me his righteousness. You know that, but think about it. When your mind is unsettled, troubled, you read that verse and you think about it. God is for you. There's glory in that. There's glory in what he's done in Christ to make you his child, to save you. There's mercy there. There's justice. And something happens as you read that. Something supernatural internally. You see it. Your eyes open. And you believe. And from that then comes stronger belief. The circle that I'm talking about. From that then comes joy. From that comes courage. It seems almost like there should be more to it. But there isn't. You read the scriptures and God works through them to convince you of their truth. He does. So do that and be encouraged you are on the right path. That's the first observation. They hear the message and they realize the scriptures, the story of Cornelius confirms that this is the gospel. Hallelujah, they delight in it. Be encouraged and be strengthened. And the second observation kind of flips things and puts us not in the shoes of those receiving the letter, but in the shoes of those disseminating the letter. So we are to be encouraged and strengthened, and we are also to be encouragers and strengtheners with the gospel. That's the second observation. We are to be encouragers and strengtheners. Take the gospel and use it to give courage and strength to those around you. This is a very important ministry in the church, the ministry of encouragement. And some of you are really good at it. I'm not particularly good at that, but some of you don't need me to tell you how to do this because you're already very good at it. The ministry of helping people with unsettled minds and troubled hearts God wants us to walk through life always rejoicing while sorrowing. God wants us to walk through life in peace while in turmoil. There's two things in tension, and I deliberately put them there in tension because you cannot pretend that there is no sorrow in life. And you cannot pretend that there is no turmoil and no tribulation. In fact, it is intended by God that there be tribulation in our path to glory. 
You cannot pretend that. But at the same time, he wants us to walk in joy and in peace and in hope. How does that happen? How do you hold those two things in tension at the same time? What's right here? Only if your minds are settled on the gospel of grace can you hold those things together. And I particularly make a point about the gospel of grace because I'm not talking right now about the ministry of encouragement that just says, you're doing a great job. You're really talented. I really appreciate when you do. There's a place for that type of encouragement, but that's not what we're focusing on here. Because... Ultimately, in the midst of a turmoil or a a sorrowing situation, you do not need to hear about how good you are. You do not need to hear about your greatness at that time. You need to hear about his greatness, about how good God is, about his covering over you, his eye always on you to care for you and protect you and comfort you and hold you, his power that is never overcome. His promise to never leave you nor forsake you. His love for you, his grace for you, all one at the cross. That's what you need to hear at times of sorrow and trouble and trial. And that's what enables you to face those things with hope and with joy. We need to hear the gospel and all the ramifications of it to be strengthened in it. And you have that all written down here. It's all in the Bible. It's all written down for you to read. It's there. And for you to pray over. And for you to ask God to work into your life. It's there. Just like it was there in the letter that they sent all around. This is the gospel. It's true. But you don't have to do it just by yourself. And God's made us in a way that we benefit from not doing it all by ourselves. They sent the letter off, but they could have just dropped it in the mailbox. They had a mail system back then. They could have just mailed it out and said, they'll get it and they'll know. But they sent messengers to say the very same thing. The text says they're going to say the very same thing, what we've written in the letter. God has made us in such a way as people that we, we can read the scripture, we can read the gospel, but there's something that's unique, I think, about how we hear it from different people. There's something that resonates in us when brothers and sisters come alongside of us to encourage us with the gospel. We're made to be a family, to be a community. We sit next to each other, and maybe in word you pass the gospel on to a friend and encourage them. Maybe you just sit there silently and listen in the name of Christ. Sometimes just the presence of another Christian reminds you of plenty. Maybe you have to hold someone or maybe you cry with them as they weep. The point is, we are a a people. We're not a, a collection of just individuals. We are individuals, but we also are a people. And God intends to pass out some grace through us to each other. So we speak the gospel to one another. We encourage one another with what the scripture is about, with what God has done, with who you are, reminding each other of that. An example. Since it's Father's Day, I'm going to use an example from fathers and interacting with kids. And this is a a type of encouragement that 
might not strike you as encouragement right off, but if you think about the issue is where your heart is unsettled and troubled, this is an encouragement that pulls your child back to the gospel, points him towards it, helps him to understand it and grasp it a little more. Fathers, we have a great responsibility in this, to be encouragers with the gospel. I think especially, not just because of our headship in the family, but especially because we could very easily be discouragers. It's very easy for men to, as Ephesians warns us, provoke kids to anger, as Colossians warns us, to discourage them, to frustrate them. Very easy for us to do that. We need to think about how we encourage with the gospel. Here's, you could pick a hundred different situations. Let me just pick one. You're at home, and your child is told to pick up his coat and hang it in the closet and take your shoes with it. And what happens is he hangs his head and grumbles and is very slow to respond. I know that never happens in your house. I've seen that once, though, before in ours. Hangs his head, grumbles, doesn't really respond very quickly. Now, there's, the issue here is, is not that he's wondering if the gospel's true. The issue is he's not thinking about the gospel at all. He's living apart from it. And there's something troubling him on the inside. In this case, it's not about the gospel. It's about my ways not getting done. I want something different. It's not going to happen. I'm upset by that. What do you do, Dad? Option A, let Mom deal with it. <laughs> because she's the one who cares about the place being clean anyway. That's, that's the first option. It's not the right option. <laughs> but it's an option. B, this is the one I think we most frequently choose. Raise your voice and sternly direct Junior to knock it off and get the coat in the closet right now. I think that's the one we most frequently choose. I would suggest that's not the right option either. It might work until Junior's big enough to stop, and then it won't work at all. C, option C. Put the paper down, pull Junior aside, and do something like this. You probably wouldn't do each one of these steps because you probably wouldn't have the time or the language to do it exactly like this, but do something like this. You ask him, what's going on in your heart, son? And when he says, I don't know, which he won't, you explain him to himself. Say, what's going on in your heart, son, is that you want your own way. Frankly, you think you should be God, and you're realizing right now that somebody else thinks you shouldn't be. And that's very frustrating to you. That's why you're upset. If you wanted to hang your coat in the closet, you'd go do it. No problem. It's not about coats and closets. It's about your heart and your attitude towards yourself, God, and other people around you. How you say that might not be in my words there, but that's where you start. You're pointing out what his heart is like, what's going on inside of there. But you don't then in the next step move to, so knock it off and hang the coat in the closet. That was option B. 
You instead, you hold up there, you know, but there's, and notice, this is frustrating you. This is trouble for you. And I'll tell you what, you're going to find this all through life because nobody on the planet thinks you're God. You're going to find it everywhere. It's troubling, isn't it? But you know what? There's another way. God has promised blessing for you. How? Well, it's the first commandment with the promise. Obey your mother and father that it might go well with you. There's blessing available. And you know what? You know that you could have a happy heart right now, delighting and enjoying and rejoicing at being a part of this family. And you could have that right now. But your heart wants something different. How does that change happen? That's what the gospel's about, son. Obviously, this is a little long to have this sort of a lecture on the couch in a heartbeat. That's what the gospel's about, son. It's about God changing your heart so that you want what he wants and you finding that to be your delight. But how does your heart change? When he saves you by grace and begins a sanctifying work in you. Trust him. Trust him and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Something like that is option C. Not those words exactly. That obviously that's very complex. It's possible, Dad, that you don't even think like that about yourself yet. So you have to think about that for yourself first and then for him. And if he's only three years old, he's not going to understand that. But he will understand it as you start talking like that. He'll understand his heart, why he's unsettled and troubled, and where the remedy to that is and what God's work on the cross has to do with any of this. You explain all of that, pieces and pieces and pieces. Is that easy? No, it's not. I struggle with that all the time as I read the paper and listen to the fight brewing in the other room. Constantly struggle with that. Oh, wait, I said it only happened once. No, constantly struggle with that. But it is what we are called to do. Our goal as fathers, your goal as a father, is not to have your kids graduate from high school without a record. I mean a criminal record. That's not your goal. That is not success. Your goal is to have them grow up loving the gospel. Strong in faith, encouraged, walking in joy. How does that happen? By believing, by coming to see, by coming to understand the gospel of grace is true. Maybe apologetics helps with that. Probably could in some places. But one key thing is they see the gospel at work. You see it working in dad's life, mom's life, in my life, even with the clothes in the closet. Interesting. And if I walk that path, it changes my heart. Interesting. You work that into them from a young age, and they grow up, and they grow up, and they grow up believing it. It's not at all easy, and I claim no arrival on this issue. That's the path we're supposed to walk. To be encouragers and strengtheners with the gospel pointing our kids to it, and for the whole church, pointing each other to the gospel, connecting it to issues in life, showing its truth, trusting that God will use it to build in us joy and hope. That's the second point. The third observation, 
pretty brief. I'm just going to do basically just state this and make one or two comments. Final observation comes especially from verse 35 and from chapter 16, verse 5. But it's implied in those four stipulations about avoiding those things that would be offensive to Jews, and it's implied in the circumcision of Timothy so as to not be offensive to Jews. All of this is happening against a backdrop of we are engaging the non-believing world around us. That's the whole backdrop. So we want to be behaving and acting in ways that will not drive them away from us. And specifically we see in, the, in those two verses, in, in verse 35 and in verse 5, that the awareness of the truth of the gospel, the strengthening in the gospel, leads to evangelism that is effective. Paul began to witness again and again and again in the city with many others from the church. Chapter 16, verse 5, the church was strengthened in its faith and grew numerically. It's evangelism, producing fruit. So here's a final observation. A church which is encouraged and strengthened in the gospel will grow. It will grow in depth. I'm talking about that already. But now I'm pointing out it will grow in breadth. As we are changed to be people of joy and hope and strong faith, a couple things happen in us. One, the, the path becomes more clear and the issues become more urgent. It gets chased out of your mind. You know, maybe those people over there, maybe they're okay too. Maybe it's not quite, you know, they'll follow their way. Maybe that'll be okay. You, become to real, you come to realize that's not the truth. It's not going to happen. There's one path. They must walk it or they'll never get there. And you also grow, in, and as a person, you grow to have your heart more firmly anchored to God so that you're less anchored to people. I don't mean that in an uncaring way. I mean in a fear of man way. The more closely I'm anchored to God, the less concerned I am for the approval of people. Conviction from the gospel, strengthened faith, frees me from having to act like you want me to act. I can instead speak the truth to you in love, regardless of whatever your outcome is. A church which is encouraged and strengthened in the gospel will grow. We have to be a gospel-centered church. We have to be a God-centered church, a grace-centered church, a church that is captured by the splendor of God and stands in awe of him, in fear of him, not shaking in our boots, fear, cringing, but in reverence. A church that lives captured by grace. God wants it to happen in us, and when it happens, he'll grow us. God grows his church by deepening our trust in the gospel. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. 
We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121. 